So listen, uh, looking into you and, uh, and the things that you've got your hands into, um, I just touched on a few of them there at the opening, but wow, man, you, you, you're a, you're a busy guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends, a co-author on several books mentioned to me today when he asked me how I was and I said I was off work a couple days of my day job, uh, where I work on firearms at uh, a, a local shop. And 
you know, he's like, well, what have you been up to? And I said, well, I'm still working on the uh, Blood Moon Rising, the history of the werewolf, and, you know, working on a program book for a horror con I have coming up in October, and, you know, building a new black dresser for my bedroom, and, you know, getting ready for a radio interview. And he's like, so you don't really have a day off, do you? And I said, well, if you look at it that way, no, I never have a day off. (laughs) Well, sometimes that's the best. Sometimes it's better to stay busy because then you never realize when you get tired. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I keep saying I'm going to slow down and write less books and paint less, but um, then I get an idea and I have four other books to put out this year and five for next year. And then I'll be at 50 books at 51. I think Uh, I kind of lose track of how many titles I really have out there. I've not sat down and tried to figure it out. Now, you have a very interesting former pen name, and uh, when you were first introduced to me by my first guest on uh, Uncomfortable, he referred to you as uh, Corvus Nocturnum. Yeah, yeah, and older fans of mine will recognize that name because I did write under it from 2005 up till, oh, probably about five, six years ago, I know I want to say. Um, and the interesting story behind that is, uh, I wanted something to stand out a little bit and I was on and brace yourself for this reveals my age. Uh, AOL chat rooms were in existence back in the early days (laughs) and I wanted the people to feel like I fit in, that they would talk to me because my very first book, I was, it, it was in interview format and a lot of history in each chapter uh, it was called Embracing the Darkness, Understanding Dark Subcultures. And uh, I've since put out a sequel, you know, basically a reprint with extra new material, mm-hmm. um, where I wanted to know goths, witches, Satanists, BDSM, uh, the tattooed piercing, you know, culture, all the different weird, you know, subcultures, uh, inhabitants of them. What was their history? What was their personal stories? Why did they get into it? What was it really? What was it not? So me diving into that, having the online screen name of Corvus Nocturnum, you know, which basically means Night Raven, which I thought was kind of cool. It is. Um, you know, it, it just kind of clicked at the time and people liked it. And that's how, how they knew me through my screen name. So, I decided to use that on the cover of my first couple books and it kind of spread and, you know, I, I got a bit of a reputation, you know, uh, self-publishing and then later developing out of that one book, uh, a few other titles and I brought on other authors and now it's grown to, you know, from 2005 to now, 16 years later, uh, Dark Moon Press and we've got everything from occult, paranormal, New Age, uh, self-help, herbalism, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, vampire, uh, horror-related stuff. I mean, you shake a stick at it, and I'm printing it now, and that's not how I started out. Wow. You're a one-man media machine. (laughs) Yeah, I I enjoy making covers more than anything, and formatting just compiling the books is kind of a, a tedious task that I just kind of churn out now, but... You know, I, I still write quite a bit, like I said, four or five titles a year uh, of my own. And the topics range from self-improvement, uh, such as the book Power, How to Get It, How to Keep It, that I just released uh, last month, um, which is 
nearly 500 pages accumulated of everything from changing your mindset to uh, wealth building after eliminating debt, you know, uh, activating your ambition, getting out of your own way, time management, you know, things like that. Um, you know, and, and then I'm, like I said, hopping back into uh, Blood Moon Rising, the history of well, werewolves, because I did really well a couple of years ago with uh, uh, World History of Vampires. Um, that was one of my other massive books that took years to compile, and uh, I'm proud and yet sad to say that Rosemary Ellen Guiley wrote the introduction for that for me, and we met up at DragonCon years ago when we were both speaking on a panel uh, on the subject of vampires. And, you know, we, we became really close, had dinner with her afterward, and just struck up a friendship that continued. And I will never forget, because that was the first time I had done more than just a handful of small college lectures and bookstore signings. You know, I was just in the front row. And, uh, you know, there were people who are world-renowned experts like Rosemary, Michelle Belanger from Paranormal State, and, uh, you know, a couple other vampire authors and a college professor by the name of John Edgar Browning, you know, who's a really renowned, he, he writes, you know, uh, forwards for reprints of Montague Summers, you know, old books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there was an extra seat, I guess somebody couldn't make it to the talk and they motioned for me to come up and join them. And, you know, I was just now starting some of my vampire books and, and research. And I whispered to Rosemary, I'm like, how am I going to fit in with you guys? You know, <laughs> I, I was terrified of this, you know, I, I'm high functioning autistic. So, you know, I was, I'm terrified speaking in front of that many people and they're like, Oh, you're going to be fine. They both, you know, patted me on the back and, you know, I was sitting there and just after a while, it was just a conversation of what we all knew about history and folklore of vampires. And, you know, the, the audience was eating it up and, after the thing was over, I was like, wow, that was really cool. That was fun. And I look out in the audience and everybody's enjoying it. I'm like, geez, there's like 200 people here staring at us. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a great story. And, and I kind of, kind of can relate to that, uh, very recently. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that I've mentioned, but, uh, I just started this podcast, merely released the first episode, I believe six weeks ago. And, uh, I, I was, I was fortunate enough to get a, um, a firsthand of a firsthand account of a, um, a Sasquatch encounter. Okay. And it just so happened to be relayed to me by someone, but I ended up knowing this person and had actually worked with him in, uh, in a, I can't really say because anybody that listens to this, I'm still trying to protect his uh, identity, but we ended up working together in the same building and uh, we never had any kind of conversations about it at all and uh, found out, heard his story, um, recorded it, put voice modulation on his voice so that nobody nobody local would recognize him. And uh, man, the show just took off. And, you know, for my second podcast, (laughs) it, it, it reached over 350 people and and I was absolutely floored, you know, I mean, 
I, I still, I still don't it. And it's still getting listeners. Um, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing. You know, you, you do one thing and, uh, it's, it's a timing thing. I believe, uh, it's, it's a topical thing. And, uh, when all those things come together, uh, there's a little bit of magic there. And I, I know what you mean sitting out there and looking at 200 people who are listening and hanging on every word. I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting a, a semblance of that myself. And, uh, right. it's absolutely terrific. So that's one of, one of the things I tell my new authors when they're asking me for tips on public appearances, whether it's a book signing locally or something small, or they get asked to go to a convention to speak and do a class or an author panel or whatever. I'm like, just have a conversation, just like doing a radio interview like this. You don't focus on the potential half million people that are eavesdropping. You just have fun with the individual that's just, you know, sharing stories with, you know? Exactly. And I think if you can get to that point where you can just look at it as having a conversation instead of something that's going to be heard by hundreds or thousands of people, um, it makes it for a, first of all, it makes it for a more intimate conversation and, right. uh, and, and much more comfortable for, for both parties. So, correct. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm already super comfortable talking to you and we've been on for what, three minutes. So, well, maybe <laughs> yeah, 10 minutes, yeah. but, um, so, you know, with all these books that you have and, and I assume by what you, you meant when you like doing the covers, you do the, you do the artwork for the majority of your books then? Um, I, I occasionally will paint a cover if the person requests it. I see Darkmoon Press has something a little different than almost any publisher on the planet is as an author myself, I understand how important it is for the book to reflect visually first impression counts mm -hmm. um, that the author needs to be happy with the design. It has to speak to them and be a reflection of what they're trying to say. They wrote the book. They know better than even I do. Sure. Um, I have to, I have to match that with me as a publisher, knowing what's going to sell and what's going to be visually appealing to the target audience I'm aware of. So I work with my authors and I'll draft a couple different versions of the cover for them and say, which one do you like the best? You know, if you have an image in particular that you found that is copyright free, that you think really grabs you as the heart of the story, send it to me. I'll work with it. You know, and most publishers are like, okay, thanks for the manuscript. A year later, they give them the contract and say they're going to put it out there and it takes time to edit and put it together. And then, poof, here's your cover. Here's the, it, it, it's out. You're stuck with it. Whether you like it or not, here's your cover. And, you know, to me, that that's, that's more of a business model of we know what's best for you, and I don't really care for that. I, I will make the final call at the end of the day, but I like to hear what my authors have to say. Sure, and I think that's important because they need to feel, they need to feel good about what they're putting out as well. Right. If they don't have passion and ownership for the final product, they're not going to want to push it as hard. Exactly. Well, interesting. Very interesting. So horror movies, you're a, uh -huh. you're a fan of, you're, you're a fan of the horror genre. Yeah, pretty much everything from the classics, uh, black and white stuff to, um, you know, the mid-level, I guess you could call it Nightmare on Elm Street and, mm -hmm. you know, especially the Hellraiser series, Clive Barker. Now you're in my know. time. Now you're in my time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah. I don't think we're too far off in ages. 
<laughs> well, I'll be 50 in May, so that tells you something. Well, I'll be 56 next month, so we're not too far off. Um, but, you know, I, I like growing up The Devil's Reign uh, with William Shantner, I believe, was in it, Ernest Borgnine. Um, right. Race with the Devil, Peter Fonda, and uh, uh, the girl that used to be in MASH. I don't remember her name offhand. Great movies. Uh, I mean, by today's standards, not so great. <laughs> I mean, they they haven't aged well. But, uh, I think movies in that time period had to go by the power of the acting and not so much of the special effects, although they really got good in the 80s and 90s for practical effects. Yeah, that's um, that's a good observation. I think you're right. They they were more driven by performances than anything. Right. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock. What you don't see is more terrifying. It's the implication. Whereas now everything is CGI and overacted or poorly acted. Right. But but the common theme in a lot of these movies that I that I enjoyed growing up was the uh, the satanic cults hiding in the middle of the woods and the, the naked women dancing around the fire and, uh, you know, <laughs> poor, poor people getting their dogs slaughtered and, you know, people peering over a, a hedgerow and, and witnessing their, um, their, their, a child being, you know, sacrificed. And, uh, so when general public thinks about Satan or Satanists or, whatever other number of of names that would encompass that group there's there's not a there's not a a a kind and gentle hand associated to that you know when you think about a satanist uh, immediately because i've researched i know that the portrayal is not true but that's that's what a lot of people expect when you talk about satanists you know, I, I, I was speaking with a gentleman earlier today that I work with, and uh, when I say the words Church of Satan, it literally, and I, and I think it was an involuntary reaction, literally his eyes kind of, kind of roll up in his head. You know, he's like, be careful with that. I get that, but I also get that we, that we don't understand what we're afraid of, and a lot of people will take it at face value, and then they just shut off. And they don't look well, into it anything. So what I'd like yeah. to hear from you is what do we, the general public, get wrong the majority of the time about? And while you're doing that, if you could please, like, correct the, the terminology, you know, is, is Satanist the same as a Luciferian, uh, satanic worship or the cults or, um, you know, all that stuff. What what separates yeah. you? What brings you together? Let's let's just get into all of it, man. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think I have some authority to speak on the subject. I've been a card carrying member since two thousand four. I was appointed to the priesthood by Magus Gilmore, who took over uh, after Anton Lavey's untimely death. Um, and I would say that uh, as a media representative, and you know, uh, of the church. Um, 90% or more of what the general public knows of Satanism or the Church of Satan is horribly inaccurate. And, you know, they only have to go by fear and propaganda in the news media and what Hollywood has hyped up for, you know, scary movies. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, first of all, the, the very biggest thing to shatter is Satanists don't believe that there is a God or a devil. Uh, there's no souls and nobody wants to buy them from you. You know, <laughs> if you want something, you know, get off your butt and go work for it. There's no devil to sell your soul to for anything. You know, and, and you it, know? It, it, it's interesting that you bring that up first and foremost, because that is something that I just found out through some research within the last two weeks that you don't even, you don't even recognize Satan or the devil or as an, no, as an right. actual entity or deity or anti-deity it's more Correct. it's more of a belief in what is it the the hebrew meaning of the word uh being yeah. a, the opposer uh, uh satan you know uh, the adversary you know is where it really stems from in, in that regard uh to be honest I, I even wrote a book that was the history of the devil um where it's called uh, I, Lucifer, Exploring the Archetype and Origins of the Devil. And it's it's merely an academic historical piece, We're talking about the devil from all cultures and their views on it and art and history and you know how it pertains to pop culture. And there's a chapter on Satanism. And in that, you know, I go very much in depth saying this is all psychological mumbo jumbo. The devil is uh, merely an aspect. It's an archetype. Uh, you know, just like a witch and the boogeyman and Santa Claus and everything else. The devil is nothing more than fiction made up by Christians and other religions that want to have a, a bad guy, a boogeyman, to blame everybody's so-called sins on. You know, they don't want to take accountability for their own actions, so they got to blame it on something external. I mean, that's the cold, hard truth. And the reason why Anton LaVey came up with Church of Satan is he wanted something to tweak people on the nose and, uh, you know, how people get things wrong and they're so horrified by the name of the church. He did that on purpose because he wanted to have it be as a filtration test. Anybody who didn't get off their butt to do some research and ask questions, read a book, read The Church of Satan by Anton LaVey, you know, um, if they don't read the Satanic Bible and understand what he's actually getting at, then he doesn't want them. You know, we are kind of narcissistic, uh, elitist assholes to a degree, if I can say that. Sure. Yeah. You, um, you don't have to worry about what we, what we say here. Okay. Um, so basically what it really comes down to is we're realistic, pragmatic, materialist, you know, philosophers who want to challenge people to attaining their goals. You know, basically Satanism is a dash of the occult trappings with Tony Robbins motivational thinking. That's it. Can you, can you be a little more specific as to the occult trappings? Uh, we like the skulls and the pentagram and, you know, the decidual baphomet because the, the deeper meaning through history with the Masonic order and the Knights Templar and everything, it's always been the creepy, ooh, bad guy. Mm-hmm. It's been the adversary to conventional goody two-shoe-ism, I would say. And we like to be the opposition, the, the satan. Uh, the opposer, the accuser, the adversary, to the general public's mindset of being so prim and proper and uptight where, you know, everything that you enjoy is a sin. Whereas we look at it from the opposite point of view. Money is not bad. It it gets things. It gets things done. It helps other people who need it. it. It's not about being so selfish you're not willing to give. But you can't give if you have nothing to help with. Very true. 
you know, uh, enjoyment uh, of food, uh, fine wine, the, the better things in life. It means you've done something with your life in order to acquire those. It means you work hard for what you want. It instills character and responsibility, which we value. And now we stop short of, you know, going overboard like Aleister Crowley. People wanted to say he was the wickedest man in the world and he's so scary. And we're like, no, he was a drug addict, overweight idiot. You know, <laughs> he, he took it. He, he, yeah, I mean, he took things too far. Whereas in Satanism, the ultimate sin is stupidity. So if you overindulge, you're going to have to face the consequences. Again, one of LeVay's famous sayings is responsibility to the responsible. Enjoy your life to the fullest as an Epicurean, but not as an overly indulgent hedonist. There are consequences for our actions. Yeah, definitely there are. Now, to your other question, and I know I can't answer everything possible in just a half hour, but... Um, as far as the temple of Satan, you know, and anything else out there that says, I'm the temple of this, I'm the church of that, and add whatever, you know, trappings and, and you know, poobah, whatever on the end, we don't like the atheistic Satanists because they're the complete opposite of us. They're basically backwards Christians who say, I'm going to worship the devil. And that's not, that's not at all what the church of Satan is about. They're, Correct. They're, they, are, they are a complete antithesis of us. And for the ones out there who like to say, well, I'm an atheistic Satanist and, you know, I follow all the things that LeVay said, except the devil's real. I'm like, well, how can you follow 90% of what he says? And yet have an entity that takes away the power of yourself being the primary motivator of your existence. So, for, in my opinion, the groups like the Temple of Set, who branched away from LeVay when uh, Michael Aquino and LeVay had a falling out in the 70s, 80s, you know, or the, the modern, you know, Temple of Satan or, or whatever they want to call themselves, these different other groups, there's hundreds of them, you know, they like to be in the news, they like to be uh, social justice warriors and pick up a cause, and Satanism is about the individual, it's not about the masses. If you want to do something for the masses, start with yourself. Make a better person out of yourself and be an example for others to follow. That's how you change the world, not by rubbing it in the faces of Christians and other religions saying, we're going to put our stuff in your school, in your government, in your face, and be on the news all the time in our goofy outfits and you know desecrating graves just to get attention. Or we're going to put a Baphomet statue in your courtyard lawn. That isn't Satanism. That, that's just the antics of somebody like, you know, a modern Marilyn Manson who wants the attention for themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so according to you, you you don't believe in the devil. You don't believe in God. There is there is no supreme good and no supreme evil, right? Right. There's only the actions that we do that are good or bad to one another. We don't have to place the blame or glory upon an external force. And these other these other groups that do claim that they use uh, that their actions are, are are driven by satanic forces, people that commit murders, and uh, you know we've seen it in the news in the years past. And are they? 
obviously by your belief there there is no putting off onto something that doesn't exist right they want to lay the blame for their actions on something else instead of owning up to it and saying i did it by not taking responsibility right uh, it's either drugs or their own weak will or an opportunity that presented itself and they didn't see the consequences of their actions till it was too late and they want to get out of jail card. Where do you think everything went wrong? Where do you think that our, and when I say our, I mean our, the, the general public, um, when did that all start getting misconstrued or has it always been? I think to some degree it always has been. Um, but then again, a- Anton LaVey created the Church of Satan back in, you know, 1966. And, and his his ideas to formulate it were boiling in the back of his head. And, you know, he had his, you know, different things that you can research. You know, uh, The Secret Life of a Satanist by Blanche Barton, who happens to be a friend of mine. She was with him for years. Um, and then later was one of the heads of the church after his death. And, you know, she's still very active in the organization and, you know, uh, her and Megas Gilmore, Peter Gilmore, the current high priest, uh, they're, they're of course very close. They could tell you far more intimate details uh, in their books and their personal experiences with the man and why he did certain things the way he did and countering all the, the crazy people out there who want to say, you know, this is why this happens, and, you know, there really was a devil in the early days. And I'm like, no, no, there wasn't. <laughs> you know, he always said it was an atheistic organization. So I think that the attention that he got by being a showman and, and the theatrics and trappings that he used definitely got the attention against the, well, we want to say during post-Vietnam era, uh, when everything was in a, in a major uproar. You know, he was getting in the faces of people. He was getting attention for it. And that was his whole thing. He was a showman. He was a carny. He loved the theater and the, you know, tweaking the hippies, you know, as well as the two straight-laced uh, politicians, you know. And, and for its time, it, it was necessary to, to get attention for this new organization. It was a giant fraternity, kind of, uh, almost in a way, uh, of philosophy of rebellion and not being the status quo. But to some degree, looking back on it, maybe it was a mistake using the ultimate boogeyman that everybody still misconstrues. And, you know, of course they're going to think of it as evil and all the stereotypes because we use the name Satan. And and I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question is, so if, if this is, is truly a, and I, I don't know if I may be coining a new new word or if, if, if it's already been used, but a, a meistic uh, type uh, religion where everything is based on you, the individual, and how you know how everything affects you and and how you affect everything. Why would right. they have Why would they have gone with portraying their church with the most heinous of 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 characters that you could? possibly pull out of the the catholic religion right right Um, or was that or was that intended as a as a as an fu to to by and large one of the larger communities in the in the world 
believe I do believe it was an fu to the church of its time and white light pagan religions who are hippie and all peace, love, everything. And LeVay saw both of those as the antithesis of enjoying one's life to the fullest. And, and, you know, if we're going to be the bad guy, might as well take the most widely recognized, you know, villain um, that encourages people, supposedly through sin, in enjoying one's life. You know, and he used Satan in the more Hebrew sense of the adversary to everything he thought was ridiculous, uh, asinine, backwards, you know, don't enjoy yourself, you know, your your reward is in the afterlife. And he says, no, when you're dead, you're dead. There is no soul, there is no afterlife, so enjoy yourself in the here and now. So to get attention for this idea and philosophy that was more in keeping with the decadent and romantic era writers, artists, you know, like Baudelaire and Oscar Wilde and, and people of the Hellfire Club era, you know, where they were indulgent and through these great lavish parties and they were wealthy and, you know, they dabbled in the occult. Um, LeVay had a liking for that mentality, but he also mirrored it with Rand and uh, Thomas Paine and Mark Twain's philosophy. Uh, You know, the practical, you know, tweak people in the nose with too much truth kind of thing of this is, the pragmatic, harsh reality of cause and effect, uh, law of the jungle, man will survive through wit, cunning, and anything else. And, you know, he, he put those aspects and melded it all together. So it truly became an organization. Uh, and he used the word church, you know, basically to let people know that they were a unit, a unity of people, a dark cabal, maybe, uh, of powerful individuals, because we have everybody from big business, entertainers, politicians, military, artists, you know, name one industry or profession, we have it. I've, I've met over 100 members individually and, and in a group at uh, the Washington, D.C. when we had our 50th anniversary uh, bash, uh, all the hierarchy were invited. And, uh, you know, that's where I met uh, Blanche for the first time and, and became friends with uh, Peter and Peggy, and they invited me to the Black House to get my reverence shipped on Walpurgisnacht in April, actually coming up end of this month. It'll be, oh boy, I want to say eight years now since I was appointed. Really? Uh, yeah, so so I've gotten to know the, the hierarchy and the, the members of the so-called Council of Nine, everybody who does a little digging on the history of the church. They're basically the older superiors that have been around since the founding. And, uh, you know, I won't name who they are because it's kind of a secret little upper echelon clique, but I know most of them. Now, why, why would it be, why would it be a secret? Uh, is it intentionally because people don't want to be known as being associated with it I, I or, think or is it more of a, um, there's a few that are, are known like myself and King Diamond and, you know, a, a few others out there. But I think the anonymity helps them to a degree because, to be honest, look at the public reaction and misconception as it is. If you knew that one of the governor's aides of a particular state that I know was a known Satanist, you know, how would that affect their career, their income, their livelihood? Sure. We're back to 
exactly the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly the point that I'm getting at. Right. You know, if stupidity is a satanic sin, then it would be stupid out yourself and lose your career. When you go back in uh, just a short period of time and you start hearing uh, on, on any any number of podcasts that deal with conspiracy theories and um, this child eating cabal of government officials that, you know, uh, have these satanic rituals and they, uh, they eat children and they, uh, you know, abuse children and, and all that. And then you have the, the supposed emails from uh, Hillary Clinton's, uh, unsecured server that references Baphomel and, and, and different things like that in the, in the headings. Am I to deduce from that, that there is some icon of truth to those? Um, well, well, let me put a few things to rest. I actually spoke to a retired FBI agent by the name of Kenneth Lanning, who some of you might remember him, uh, as being one of the head investigators, a Catholic no less, during the satanic panic era of the 80s into the 90s, mm-hmm. when uh, the book Michelle Remembers and a few others were uh, coming out, when people were saying the exact same thing, that Satan is kidnapping our children and you know at daycare centers and doing all these horrible things. Uh, Kenneth Lanning actually went into it as an agent profiling, thinking that he would expose this and dig deeper into it. But the more he got involved with the Anton LaVey and other members, he realized that there's not one member among us who's ever been committed, convicted of a crime. The more he got to know what the philosophy really was, he's like, well, you guys wouldn't harm an animal or a child. It's even part of the satanic Bible. It's literally one of the rules of the earth and the satanic sins is do not harm animals unless it's for food or and do not harm children, and the reason for that is LeVay had a lot of animals. I'm glad you. Lot of <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say and don't harm children unless it's for food. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but uh, seeing the way some people raise their kids to be little animals, I can see why some animals eat their young. <laughs> I will agree with that 100. percent Yeah, but LeVay loved animals and children, and his whole point with that is. They're young and innocent and don't have the same stupidity, hatred, and vile destruction of everything around them. The they, way adults they haven't do. had a chance to grow up to be assholes. Exactly. I'm glad you said it that way because I was stopping short of that. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, personally, I have felt that way forever. You know, if I see, if I see, if I see a child that has, you know, a, a two-year-old child that has to wear um, glasses, because they can't see right, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, it almost brings me to tears because, you know, the, the innocence that they're at at that point in their life, they've not, they've not been able to do anything harmful to their environment or other people or other children or animals. It's, it's, it's right. one of the things that really is uh, tugs at my heartstrings is to see a, a child and then, you know, beyond that, people that abuse animals are the biggest pieces of shit walking the face of the earth. So, um, yep, yep. I mean, a lot of us go into the military, and uh, I was one of them. I, I went beyond that into criminal justice, then became a bounty hunter in fugitive recovery. So, 
for several years. I've recently retired to work in the gun store now um, because we have a very strong sense of right and wrong and justice, and it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with don't be a piece of shit human being to one another or there's consequences. And, man, if we could just get that across to, to everybody in the world, wouldn't this be a better place? I mean, one of the rules of the earth is when out in the open, trouble no one. If they do, ask them to stop. If they don't, then destroy them. A lot of people take the destroy part to the way extreme, and given whatever circumstances is necessary, uh, equal to the you know, kind of like the least force-on-force level of escalation uh, comes into play here. Um, sorry if I'm throwing too much criminal justice lingo nope, out there at for all. the audience. It, it comes down to we say don't do that. Then it says ask them to stop. The third step is then do whatever you have to, to get them to quit. And if you notice in that order, it doesn't go immediately to pull out a gun and shoot the asshole. It's ask them politely to stop. Seeing us get a bad rap as being rude jerks. Yes, we are elitist. We do know we're better than other people because we try harder to be better people than other people. But we're polite until we you remember the old quote in Roadhouse? I do. That's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, be nice it until is, it's time not to be nice. That's exactly And it. I actually was nice. a bouncer back in the day. <laughs> okay, so you totally get it. I mean, we're supposed to be polite, well-dressed individuals. We're not uh, rock concert t-shirt wearing black fingernail polish, look spooky to piss off mommy and daddy like Manson, although he was a member for a while. We're more often in dark, nice suits and well-behaved, ladies and gentlemen, because we understand power and wealth are only acquired by fitting into society and being polite but ruthless when necessary. We're, we're very Machiavellian when it comes to things like that. Okay, I have to ask this question, because having been born and raised Catholic, not currently practicing, but still spiritual, one would believe that what we are we were or are taught is that the devil is uh, all about lying. He's all about telling deceptive truths. If you you know you, you all the things that you've stated to me that you know to cause no harm and and all that. If if it was, what would you say to somebody if you were if you're presented with? Well, when, isn't that exactly what the devil would tell us? Oh, are you alluding to Charles Baudelaire, I believe it was, who said the greatest trick the devil ever did was make you think he didn't exist? Somewhat, yes. Um, well, people can believe what they want. They can buy the Satanic Bible and interview people more connected and higher up than me. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you like this. In a book called The Devil's Notebook by Anton LaVey, which is one of my favorites of his, it's kind of small and lesser read, there's a chapter, a little essay called Let Me Entertain You. And he talks about uh, a trick that he used to pull on people where he would say, dress yourself up in Halloween garb with a pitchfork, you know, a long robe and burn some incense and have spooky music and some fog and let the person come into your home and tell them all these wild, crazy, twisted tales of what you are. 
And then just as you tell them they can leave and they're halfway out the door, you and your buddies yuck it up loud so that they understand you are just being a dick to them and they none just of got it was played. true. Yeah. Because if people want to really believe that that's what we are, let them. And we'll continue being the happy, successful, uh, accomplished people that don't want to hurt other people out there unless we absolutely have to. We're, we're about enjoying our life to the fullest. There is no afterlife. There's no devil to sell your soul to. And we don't recognize any, you know, supernatural force that, that's playing uh, with us. We, we don't believe in anything like that. We think that people who truly believe that the demons are going to get you are suffering from a mental health problem. They need their medication. And I said this on a panel when myself and Rosemary Allen Guiley, Father Bob Bailey, and a bunch of other guys were at a paranormal con. Uh, I was kind of hesitant to be the last person to give my answer when they said, what about going to homes and doing, you know, exorcisms and, and helping these poor affected people? And everybody gave their standard little answer for whatever, you know, they were Catholic, they were a paranormal investigator, they were this, that, and the other. I was the last person to answer, and everybody in the room is staring at me, wanting to know what I thought as a priest in the Church of Satan. I mean, I had everybody from the moderator and audience, of course, waiting to hear my answer, but also the other fellow panelists. Someone like Rosemary already knew what I was thinking, but, you know, everybody's hanging on my word, and I'm like, okay, I'm the last guy called because they want to put me on the hot seat, right? Right, sure. And, I, and I'm like, well, and I thought for a second, while everybody else was answering, I was trying to think of the best way to say it. Be honest, be blunt, but not sugarcoat. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to tap dance around. I said, honestly, I think every one of you on this panel will agree with me that if we instantly jump to the conclusion someone is possessed, even though the Church of Satan says this is all bullshit, that there's no devil to be possessed by, if we instantly jump to that conclusion and say it's this, when the person actually is suffering mentally, physically, uh, even in your case spiritually, say, we're doing them a disservice by not getting them the psychological and medical prescription help they need. Aren't we culpable if we pat them on the head and sprinkle some holy water on them, mumble some words and leave, take the money of the family and laugh all the way to the bank, and then they kill somebody because they're, they've lost their goddamn mind? Wow. Yeah. And surprisingly, everybody in the room applauded and said that part of even exorcisms now, they've changed how they do it to where they try to rule out the mundane and the psychological first. And to me, that's progress. Yeah, that, that obviously should be first and foremost. Because, because I think any, anybody, anybody in any size town today could be driving to work in the morning and see somebody on the, on the street or sidewalk that yeah. <clears throat> would fall into that category. Right. I mean, a good share of homeless people have, have mental issues. I mean, mm-hmm. I was homeless once. I saw it myself back when I was early twenties before I went in the military, I was on the streets and it was terrifying, you know, not beyond the obvious of what you need to do to survive, but right. you know, some of the people that had mental issues lost their jobs and just were wandering around talking to nothing. 
or, or they thought was somebody, you know, or whatever. Um, it's sad that it's just people, you know, through healthcare don't have the medication or the treatment. Uh, and part of that stems from my research in, in the book, uh, haunted asylums is I was talking about rule out the mundane and, you know, people that were let out of these asylums in the eighties when budget cuts and certain medications kicked in and they no longer needed, you know, thousands of people packed into these giant monolithic Gothic, you know, institutions, they let them roam. And if they didn't have family to take them in or halfway houses or, or treatment centers, they were wandering the streets because they had nowhere else to go. That's where the stereotype of the crazy homeless person came from. Yeah. Well, let me, let me segue into another part of why I wanted to talk to you and you've already addressed it to some extent. But I, I need some clarification for you. I would like some clarification from you in that if if there is nothing supernatural that can possess us or, or, or cause these things, is, is everything, ghosts, um, hauntings, the occult, paranormal encounters, uh, magic, is all that horseshit? Or is there, or is there something out there? I thought you were going to get to that, and it's, it's that's a difficult question, even for some of our members, uh, our paranormal enthusiasts. We love the history, we love the spooky places because of the architecture, the stories, or how connected it is to horror films, all that on the surface. But I'll give you a twofold response, and I hope it isn't contradictory. Um, and we don't like care if Einstein, it is. <laughs> like, like Einstein says, energy is neither created nor destroyed. It just simply changes forms to paraphrase his thinking. Yep. So on a scientific point of view, we don't know what happens to the life force. I mean, uh, obviously given our ages, we, we've been to funerals. We, we see people lying in a coffin that was once someone we knew. And even beyond the look of the person being different because of what they have to do, um, it doesn't feel like them, that, that spark, that essence of who they were. That uh, Right, there's something missing, yeah. Yeah, and, and I believe that that is an aspect of what other people would call their soul, their, their spirit is no longer there. And I would say that that is the energy of excitement and, and the very literal energy, the atoms and, and everything that makes someone alive, that that's dissipated. Now, does that form take another aspect? Is that residual, I guess you would say, uh, echo of who they were linger? In, in, you know, I believe it was William Shatner or someone who was a host of a strange and unusual type show where he was talking about in an old west abandoned town, there were sounds you know, like clinking pool falls and mm-hmm. voices yeah. and conversation and music going on. And it turned out when they deeply investigated scientifically, there was so much lead in the paint and something to do with the atmosphere that at certain peak times you could hear those sounds. It was almost as if like a, a, a tape recording. A recording, yeah. But it, it was just playing it back. Now that might be part of it. But for the places that aren't like that, I'm, I'm just as curious of a skeptic and, and 
wanting to know answers, just like every other paranormal investigator. So I've written books on the topic and done some investigations like a few of our other members. We look at it from a scientific point of view that everything that people want to say through religion or superstition is fear of, of man's you know, primal fear of nature, things that go bump in the dark. We didn't used to know what fire was or lightning or mm-hmm. you know everything else, but later there was a scientific explanation. Maybe we're just ages and ages away from figuring out what that is. And we want to know too. But we don't believe that it's Grandma Bessie trying to give us a message with the Ouija board. Because the other side of the answer, officially from the Church of Satan, and I had this conversation with High Priest Gilmore right before I did a consult to appear on Satan Soldier episode of Paranormal State. I said, you know, how do I answer this? I know what I think, and I I know uh, my personal opinions, but how do I answer this on camera? Uh, it didn't show up on the episode. Ryan Gill called me the night before the show aired, and he's like, eh, we had to put it on A&E.com on a clip, and that five-minute segment with him interviewing me actually stayed up there for years. But, you know, I told him at the time, officially from the Church of Satan, we don't believe that there is a paranormal afterlife or, or ghosts that are literal conscience entities of who we knew but it is a residual echo, like I explained from mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the other Old West example or something that remains behind of their essence. That, that's as close as the Church of Satan is going to say about anything, uh, you know, otherworldly. It, it, it's more based on science and psychology uh, of, of something that's uh, remnant. So... What about the occult? What about uh, conjuring um, demons and, uh, and, 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 and magic? Is, is that just uh, another big bag of nope? Um, I would say that the whole demons thing is a big bag of nope because if there's no devil, there can be no minions. Right. Uh, poltergeist and things like that, that's a, a weird phenomenon that I'm not sure how to explain uh, other than but poltergeist, um, poltergeist experiences have been in some form uh, tied to young kids who are, are getting into the into the, uh, the the time of life where they start getting the hormone hormonal changes and, and stuff like that. Right. So that that could be a, some sort of a psycho psychokinetic or disturbance or something right. of that. I was fascinated by that as a kid, you know, reading, you know, the possible science behind things like Stephen King's Terry mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, other mental powers. And I thought it was a blast. I mean, now you just say, oh, that's the X-Men with telepathy, you know, <laughs> but uh, showing my geek side here. But, yeah, I mean, I got into this stuff in my fascination with weird things because my grandmother was part of the whole research into the Bermuda Triangle and F, uh, UFOs, and she loved Bigfoot and things like that. And we're talking somebody who died maybe 10, 15 years ago when she was 90 at the time. So she was into that wow. since she was a kid. This is not new. Right, you yeah. know, I grew up with someone who loved the spooky, weird stuff, and my grandfather was, you know, a Freemason, and his father was too. So the occult trappings and, and secret societies is in my nature 
but I was more practical, pragmatic, and like horror stuff. So the Church of Satan, to me, once I learned what it really was, kind of was a natural fit. But I kind of downplayed it over the last five years because I don't want people to just see me as, you know, it's also why I dropped the, the pen name Corvus Nocturnum. I wanted people to treat me serious. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started writing under E.R. Vernor because I wanted to be an academic and somebody that even though I had spooky topics, I approached it from a rational academic historical point of view and through in interviews and, you know, stories of what other people said took place here that I personally don't believe in, but I felt it fair as a, a researcher to include it. That, that's how I explain to people that are like, well, if you're such an atheist and skeptic, then how can you crank out books on, you know, all these topics that you, you, you don't fully believe in? Well, just because I don't believe every aspect of it doesn't mean I'm not fascinated by the history, the folklore, the pop culture, and the psychological implication of people in general. To me, the topics of being spooky and all that, that's still cool stuff. Yeah, that's the icing on top. And that's what, you know, that's what got me into, you know, since I've done so many conventions as a speaker and, you know, made so many friends over the years, that's how I started up my own convention here in Fort Wayne for October is I, I basically pulled out my collection of literally a shoebox under my bed full of business cards of vendors and stars and their agents and, you know, all these different people I'd met over the years. And I started calling them saying, Hey, if I, you know, wanted to put something together, would you come? And they said, yes. And before so, we get, and before we get off the show tonight, I'd, uh, I'd like to have you stay on the, the line once I close up because I, I do want to get some information on that October show. Sure. Sure. You know, so I was like, I went to my city officials. We have an annual zombie walk, and I think we're into the 14th year where like 10,000 people go a couple blocks, and, you know, it stops at the Grand Wayne Center, you know, a convention center with the the Hilton built in. And I I went to the guy who heads the the zombie walk in Fort Wayne, and the, uh, the manager of the part of downtown improvement district, he's like, you know, I was like, why don't we have a, a horror con like all these other, you know, big cities like, you know, Scarefest and Horror Hound and Indy and, you know, Cleveland and Days of the Dead in Chicago. And the guy looks at me and he says, well, we know who you are and what you've done. Why don't you, he basically said, why don't you do it yourself? So I, I pulled out that shoebox I was talking about. I found out what it would cost to rent the building and half the the Hilton and, you know, airfare for stars and all that. And I started piecing it together with some friends. And, well, here we are. And, you know, dead convention is a thing, uh, even notwithstanding COVID canceling us last year. And and how long does the uh, dead convention run? Uh, It starts on the 15th, which is a Friday. uh, And then Saturday and Sunday, the 16th and 17th of this year uh, in October. Outstanding. So it's basically an excuse for me to get together with all my old friends and throw a giant party the likes of Fort Wayne has never seen. <laughs> Have some fun. Well, that does sound like fun. Well, we're right about the hour mark. And um, truly, it, it was a, it was an enjoyable conversation with you. I, I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. And Well, thank you. I had fun. It was somewhat enlightening to me 
although I had already known some of what your answers were going to be based on, on some, uh, some recent investigation of my own. And I think we accomplished what I wanted to. And, and that's not, that's not to be a, a promotion of this, uh, lifestyle or in any way, shape or form, try to convince anybody that it should be for them or not be for them. Just simply a, a good, honest hearted conversation between two guys talking about this topic and and the misconceptions that have have followed it for basically forever so i appreciate your candor and your honesty i'd love to have you back on the show again sometime if you'd like oh uh, by all means you you were a delightful host you asked intelligent questions and uh, I didn't have to answer the same old questions I've done a thousand times. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it makes me feel better because <laughs> the last thing I wanted is somebody to, to be falling asleep on the other side of the uh, the phone line here. Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it. And trust me, I have literally done a thousand interviews in the last decade. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, this has been Uncomfortable. The show is written and produced by me, Eric Salaji. If you have an experience or a story you'd like to have featured on an upcoming episode, please email me at contact.com uncomfortable at gmail.com